and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Monster of Ellendhaven, Doomsday Book, and the eighth episode of the first season of X-Files, called The Ice. Hello and welcome to episode 57, We All Fall Down. I'm Alex and I'm the leeches one. I'm Freya and I'm the malariotherapy one. I'm Macy and I'm Quinine. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff. We're talking about plague narratives and that's going to be a lot. Um, I imagine that there will be at least one Fun Facts Dr. Freya corner, like right now. (laughs) Freya, give me a Fun Facts Dr. Freya corner. What? Is malariotherapy? <laughs> malariotherapy is one of my very favorite things that has been done in the area of wild cures. So you know that now we can treat syphilis, right, with penicillin mm-hmm. quite easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we had penicillin, all they knew was that it was a bacteria that caused it, and if it wasn't treated, it would progress to neurosyphilis, the third mm-hmm. stage. Someone worked out that these syphilis bacteria are very temperature sensitive, and if you induce a high enough fever in someone, they will die. And the easiest way they had to induce a high fever was to infect the person with malaria, which they could treat with quinine. Oh, this is almost as bad as the rabies cure. Except it actually worked. So all they would need would be three or or four swings up into the really high fevers of malaria, and that would kill the bacteria and halt the progression of tertiary syphilis. And then they would treat the malaria with quinine. There was a chance that you would die of malaria, but it was a much (laughs) smaller chance than your 100% death rate of tertiary syphilis. Oh my god. That is malaria therapy. Isn't it awesome? That is awesome. Biology is cool. If I write a, a, a fictional plague, I'm probably going to do some variant of that uh-huh. as the cure. That's very cool. Thank you for that high quality <laughs> uh, fun facts, Dr. Freya Corner, Dr. Freya. You're welcome. So before we go on to the rest of the episode, uh, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I have just spent a lot of time on holidays and on very long planes. So I've actually mm. read quite a few novellas which are nice bite-sized chunks for when your brain is dying of travel. <laughs> so I have read recently The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho, which is out- upcoming from Tor.com. Uh, Fly Away by Kathleen Jennings, also upcoming from Tor.com. Ditto Drowned Country by Emily Tesh. Mm, I may have picked jealous. up quite a few arcs You've been when spoiled. I invaded the Tor.com offices to visit some friends. I got very spoiled. You did. And uh, also Moon Tangled by Stephanie Burgess which is an FF installment in her sort of Regency plus magic series, which was great. I wanted to give a special shout out to Fly Away. Kathleen mm-hmm. Jennings is an Australian writer, and this is an Australian Gothic fairy tale mishmash novella with a lot of sort of horror elements. It is the most Australian thing I've ever read. <laughs> it's beautifully written. It's very creepy. And I want everybody I know to read it so that I can point them at it and say, yes, this is what growing up in Australia is like, although maybe with a little bit less magic murder fairy tale stuff. Don't tell them that part. Don't tell them that part. Like that's that and the drop bears are real, Freya. Right? There are there is a version of a drop bear in this. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Wonderful. Correct. Anyway, read it when it comes out. It's great. Necessary. Required. Uh, meanwhile, I have been reading a few things. I'm going to mention three of them now because I gave myself a little reading project these past few weeks because we had a three-week break between episodes, which was luxurious. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have read Sisters of the Vast Black by Lena Rather, which is another Tor.com novella with space nuns and a plague in it and a little side FF romance, which is adorable. I've also read The Case for Socialism by Alan Mass, which is a non-fiction book about why we should be doing and socialism, which yeah, I'm trying to research what's likely to be the next six months of shouting in this country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I also wanted to give a shout out to one particular fic that I read, because I'm always reading fic, right? But this one did some twisty and fascinating and terrifying things with time travel. So I highly recommend it, um, although it is a Hannibal fic. So content warnings for Hannibal fic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like content warnings, cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of light cannibalism and rather a lot of stabbing. It's called Paris or Maybe Hell by Basingstoke. 
Oh, Basingstoke has written some yes. very wonderful things. Basingstoke is really quite fabulous. Yes, yes. Um, despite the fact that we've had a three-week break, I luxuriated in not having <laughs> to read anything whatsoever except Scumville and fanfic. In my defense, I also had like a week where I was out of town, where I had to go to a convention. Had to go to a convention. Had to. I enjoyed the experience of going to a convention. Um, and I was also in New York City to see Freya when Freya was uh, on the continent. Yay! Yay. Wrong coast, Freya. Wrong coast. <laughs> hey, a <laughs> Freya can have a little bit of a visit with Alex as a treat. <laughs> Um, and I've been doing a lot of knitting. I haven't really been reading things. I got ahead on our tentpoles for the next episode, though, so hey. that's something. Also, before we go on, a small piece of news, dear listeners. This is the uh, number seven of an episode, which means that we are ex- uh, announcing the extravaganza for episode 60. Holy shit, how have Ooh. we done 60 episodes? Well, we haven't done them yet. There's still time to not do them. <laughs> um, we are going to be recording that episode on april 10th uh we're back to our usual usual hijinks this time so just uh ask us your questions that you've been wondering about things based on previous episodes themes uh or just in general just in general maybe life questions (laughs) (laughs) Um, don't ask for advice because we'll give it to you true as evidence your advice is how do i recover from the untamed the answer is you You don't don't. it's terminal you just have to you pass it along to someone else but we have some very good scum villain fix for after you've read all of the untamed fix. Yes. Yes, that's true. I mean, I feel like reading scum villain is a good way to treat yourself from the untamed. Anyway, <laughs> on the metaphor of sicknesses, <laughs> uh, modeling fandoms as plagues is exceedingly appropriate well, this yeah. week. But so before we go on, we also have a small disclaimer. Macy? So, sort of a disclaimer. We are recording this episode on February 29th. And I'm going to bring the tone down a little bit now because in the point in time that we are, I'm sitting here in Washington state where we've just had our first confirmed death from the coronavirus, uh, from COVID-19. And we are all kind of stocking up on our food supplies and practicing our 20 second hand washing techniques Mm -hmm. to try to help those around us who might be immunocompromised. So this is not something that we intended when we planned this episode. We planned this episode back in December. I really don't want us to come across as like opportunistically jumping on a plague that's a real literal thing. Yeah, that'd be fucked up. No, we- That'd be fucked up. We plan our episode themes several months in advance. I think we went up to, last time we sat down and we had a planning session was in December, like you said, and we went up through April, I think. Yep. So this is going to be a bit of a less jokey episode than usual. I don't promise it will be entirely serious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, be known. let it be known that we take this seriously. Yeah. And particularly given Freya, our doctor, human, uh, yes. takes this quite seriously. <laughs> so yes, there may be a few fun facts or less fun facts Freya corners throughout. They will probably not be focusing at all on preparedness or the state of the pandemic as it actually applies to COVID-19 and the current state of the world. We'll probably be focusing more on fictional plagues and their uses in fiction and what they say, but obviously there's going to be some unavoidable overlap with current events. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So take that with a grain of salt. And I think we we decided that if things really take a turn for the worse in terms of the coronavirus, then we may end up delaying this episode in terms of when it is released. Yep. That's our disclaimer. So yeah, um, nervous snacks. Isn't this like the third time that we've accident that we've like planned an episode and then it's become like weirdly relevant? <sighs> it turns out fiction is relevant to the world. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. yeah. Science fiction and fantasy especially, unfortunately. Somehow. It's yeah. almost like future fiction is actually commenting on the present. Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. <laughs> well done. So Wild if true. <laughs> let's have an episode. Let's have an episode on that note. Define so, some terms. Define some terms. Yes. So w- w- I actually put this dot point in when we said, we'll do a plague episode about plague narratives. Those are fun. Ugh. <laughs> Those are fun. Yeah. Well done. Us. So when we serpents say that. Raise what... fist, shake fist at past serpents. God damn it, serpents. Uh, so what do we actually mean? Are we going to be talking about any kind of infectious disease? Or when we say plague narrative, does the term carry with it at least some kind of implication of an epidemic or pandemic status? What do we think? So I think for me, um, 
two things need to be true for something to be a plague narrative. Uh, one is it has to be potentially deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, for me, it has to have what the CDC has been calling uh, community transmission, which is where people are catching this disease without you being able to immediately track back where they caught it from, where it's kind of present in the community. It's spreading fast and scarily. Okay. And that may mean a pandemic or it may be a localized plague. I think that one of our tent poles is a very localized, yes. quote unquote, plague. But for me, that's what that means. What about you two? Okay. I agree with the second. I think you have to have that sense of spread, possible unknown source, mm. and, an ever, and a danger of transmission while you're unaware. I don't necessarily agree that it has to be fatal because I can think of some texts that employ plagues or diseases that have lasting consequences mm, i suppose i'm that's thinking fair. about um children of men which had the infertility plague mm, okay yeah uh, in its background as part of mm-hmm. its world building setup that um the plague that went through humanity and didn't necessarily kill i can't remember if it did i'm assuming it did kill some people i can't quite remember the setup exactly but it left people unable to have children okay and so i think you can have a plague like that and there's even like oh i'm thinking about jose saramago's book blindness which is about mm-hmm. an epidemic of blindness Mm. in a society so i think serious effects but not necessarily fatal is what i would say okay i can give you that that's legit do you have anything else alex what does it mean for you between the two of you i think you covered it (laughs) okie doke then we'll hand it back to you (laughs) my co-hosts are just so smart goodness (laughs) alexandra sneck is now in charge of our first and most classical and most prestigious of tent poles yes um this tent pole is the doomsday book by connie willis and can we just take a moment to go ah connie willis She's so good. She's so good. She's so good. She's just so good. How is she just so good all of the time, always? Um, I looked back at my Goodreads. The last time I read this book was a decade ago. Wow. (laughs) I have never read this book before. When did it win the Hugo and the Nebula? It came out in 1992, so it would have won in 93. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And very deservedly so. It's a fantastic book. It's about the... Oxford sort of time travel. It's the first book, I believe. The, uh, yes, I believe it's the first book. Um, and we've already done the second book, which was To Say Nothing of the Dog for our time travel episode. I can't remember if we... We did tentpole it. Tentpoled it. We did. We did. We did. We did. It's called the Oxford Time Travel Series, I believe. Yeah, yes. we did it for our time travel fix-it-fic um, yes, series. Yes, um, And that one had a very different tone. It was a lot funnier and more lighthearted. And I think I was kind of expecting that same tone in this book. And it's no. very <laughs> much darker. It's very, very much darker. Um, a lot of people die. Uh, so the main character, Kivrin, is sent back in time, kind of through this bureaucratic fuck up shall we say, to put it, to do the the short version of this plot. Through a bureaucratic fuck-up, she's sent back to the Middle Ages, which are very dangerous, and she's accidentally sent, instead of to 1320, uh, when the Black Death had not yet reached England, she was sent to 1348, Mm -hmm. which is right at the beginning of the Black Plague. And she watches this uh, family who had taken her in, all catch the plague and die and she has she's doing her best as a person from the modern era who knows medical procedures who knows about proper hygiene she is desperately trying to save even just one of these people and get them out and and keep them alive and they all fucking die Yep. So it's dark as shit. Meanwhile there's a parallel narrative going on back in um England uh, of the or mo- the modern day England of uh, 2050 actually I think is when it's mm-hmm. set um, and there were two things which gave me kind of a um, macabre chuckle which is that Connie Willis not only predicted the EU but predicted Brexit okay. <laughs> <laughs> so good job Connie Willis <laughs> she's just too good but I think it was a very effective um so she uses time travel as a way to reflect two narratives against each other. Yes. And throughout the book, there's this modern flu-like virus that is slowly becoming a thing in an Oxford that has had pandemics in the recent enough past that they have a bunch of tactics in place. Uh, they immediately go into quarantine mm-hmm. um, and everyone kind of knows what to do. Um, 
with Kivrin, who is stuck in the past and does not realize that the plague is bearing down on her. Yeah. And the book kind of jumps back and forward. And it's, you know, when they're in a horror movie and they're playing that music, but you don't know what's about to jump out. Mm hmm. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good book. And like you can hear the music, but the character can't. And you're sitting there going, please turn around. Please just turn around. Please just turn around. I think the thing that really got me was how much Kivrin was struggling to save. One of the little girls uh, skins her knee and gets the first signs of a blood infection. And Kivrin's like, no, 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 you're not dying from a skinned knee. I'm not going to let this happen. And manages to save her from that. And then she dies with the play getting away. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that the Kivrin's narrative has that sense of creeping dread, especially once you hit. It actually took a lot longer than I remember yes. for the plague to actually hit the characters in the past timeline. But all through it, you get a sense of it could be coming, it could be coming, this thing is about to hit. And I think it makes it very effective that in the present day timeline especially because also the tone there is a lot lighter Mm -hmm. at least to begin with you have this classic connie willis series of people trying to leave messages for people and call people (laughs) and having to deal with uh yeah she she didn't just see mobile phones and and connie willis is especially good at depicting people who are just like fucking annoying and just like (laughs) getting in the way and like being obstructionist and just like please stop getting underfoot so i can get my job done yeah so because you have that more oh connie willis she's so good at hijinks and fuck ups yeah you don't get the sense of creeping dread in the present day narrative because you don't yet know how serious it's going to be yeah it's all just an inconvenience and our main character just uh mr dunworthy or was it dr dunworthy 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 who is worrying about Kivrin and worrying about everything that's going on and trying to like drag sense out of his obstructive and insufferable colleagues, you see him being so overwhelmed and busy that we don't get a sense of the possible seriousness of it right. until somebody actually dies in the present, which again takes a while. Yeah. yeah. And so you don't actually have creeping dread, but you feel like you get these little shocks out of nowhere in that narrative. And a lot of times with time travel sort of things you kind of sometimes get the sense that the main character is going to be okay and with this i absolutely was not sure whether kivrin right. was going to be okay I, I, at several points i was like oh shit kivrin doesn't make it out like yeah. we have the dooms the recording of the doomsday book which is her way of like it's a, a voice recorder that's in her palms so that she can press her palms together and look like she's praying and speak into it and it's disguised as a bone spur and one of the characters is like digging through the archaeological dig and I was like, oh shit, they're going to find Kivrin's hand. Kivrin doesn't come back from this. Holy fuck. So right. it was like the stakes were very real and very high and I was deliciously stressed out by it. And anytime someone is like, you can't write a story in past tense first person because you're removing all the stakes. You don't, you know that the character will survive. I'm like, fuck you, go read some Connie Willis. Yeah, seriously. Connie Willis is just... You can't do time travel and maintain a fear about your characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you not, though? Connie Mm. Willis. Well, maybe you can't, but Connie Willis can. (laughs) (sighs) And I I liked that both of the narratives are obviously clear plague narratives, and both Mm -hmm. of them have a couple of key things, which are whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. Uh, In that both of these things are really nobody's fault. Like this flu like illness we do discover where it came from and that mm-hmm. it sort of was possibly unlocked from a tomb question mark <laughs> yeah. in a very like curse of the mummy kind of way yeah. uh, and the other one obviously we know about the causation of the black plague but both of them contain in them very strong themes of where do humans look for someone to blame or something mm-hmm. to blame and Kivrin especially i think struggles with attempting to explain to these people who are absolutely convinced that it is a curse, either a punishment mm-hmm. from God or it is caused by witches or it is caused by the devil, she cannot actually communicate to them that it is nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Do we think that plague stories are mm, almost always mysteries? No. I think it depends on what you're doing with it in terms of narrative tension. Yeah. I think if you are looking for where did it come from, then that is a mystery. If where it came from is irrelevant, not necessarily. If you're looking for 
we have to learn as much as we can about it so we can then get a cure, which is <clears> usually what a plague narrative is doing. Yep, right. There is always a sense of, yes, there is a mystery of some kind, but right. what mystery is to be solved may depend on what your stakes are and whether finding the cure is the end goal or whether the plague is context. But I think we're going to talk more about that. Yeah, like the X-Files yeah, episode on. is definitely a mystery. Yes. Well, shall we talk about the next tentpole that completely is not? Sure. So the next tentpole is one of the most gloriously dark things that I think I read last year. It was very um, dark. It was very <laughs> squishy dark in a good, fun way. It was very squishy. I was I was halfway through my reread and I was like, is Alex going to be okay? No, because... I was fine. <laughs> okay. Cause it, I... wasn't, it wasn't the sort of thing that gives me the heebie-jeebies because okay. the villains are the main characters and so you can see everything that they're doing. It Good. more freaks me out when, with horror when you can't see the scary thing and then it jumps out at you. So we are talking today about the novella The Monster of Ellendhaven by Jennifer Giesbrecht, which is a novella from Tor.com. It has a... MM pairing at the center of it. They are both dreadful human beings. They're so bad. They're the worst. Or possibly not human beings. Or possibly not human beings. One of them might be a zombie. Um, And it's all about this foppish dandy's quest for revenge for the way that he and his family were treated when a plague infected their city 15 years ago. Um, And this revenant who runs around murdering people for fun and accidentally becomes enchanted with this dandy. And they then find out towards the end of the book, they were kind of attached to one another all along because Mm -hmm. the dandy might have been the one who accidentally created the revenant. Yeah. It's Um, so good. It's good shit. Yeah. I think you're right that it's not particularly horrifying because we're in Johan, the Renaissance mm-hmm. point of view. Who's just delighted in everything. And he's not horrified. He thinks everything that's happening is great. And so you kind of get infected by his yeah. infected. Ha-ha, we're just going to have a good stabby time. Yeah, by his enthusiasm for what's happening. There's a bit in the middle where after um, Florian, the dandy, has created a magical plague and infected a bunch of people to see what happens, um, then Johan, the revenant, goes after one of the people who was infected to look at him because he's like, ooh, plague, that sounds fun. I wonder how it's going. (laughs) And while he's there, he's like, well, he's nearly dead, so I'll just kill him anyway. And then, like, carves strips of flesh off of him to bring back to his dandy as a gift. <laughs> this is for <laughs> you. Because Florian's like, what are you doing? I don't need these. And he's like, but gift. Samples. <laughs> <laughs> and Florian's like, no, now you kn- now everybody knows it was a murder instead of, like, <laughs> natural causes. Uh, Johan is not smart. No, he's not. He just likes to do a stab. Yeah. Um, but this is absolutely not a mystery for a second. No. No, you know you know what is happening and why it's happening at every step of the way. It's a bioweapon, right? Yeah. yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, like, you're using this sort of magically adapted plague to get revenge on some other people. So yeah, it's a it's a bioweapon. And then, and like, the, the whole that, world? Yeah. Well, Florian is getting revenge on the world for what was, sounds like, a fairly sensible approach to quarantine. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. He's like, we were dying. You could have come and helped us. And everyone's like, but plague? Plague, you know? though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But plague? We, so, yeah, nobody came and helped because there was a plague in that city. And it sounds like it was fairly contained to Ellenhaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But in his eyes... <laughs> The fact that they were all left alone to die was such a betrayal that he now wants to make everyone else suffer as they suffered, which, you know, classic gothic revenge horror narrative. Sure. And I mean, I love that he and his sister were very clearly deranged isn't quite the word I want, but mildly sociopathic beforehand. They kill a kid. Yeah, they just like, happen, and then they're like, "Whoops!" They stab him. Like, "Whoops!" I guess rather than getting him medical help, we'll just throw him in the mystical ocean that might spit him back out as a revenant. Oh yeah, it's not implying that the plague is why Florian is the way he is. No. It's just unfortunate that someone who is like Florian was someone who survived the plague. Yeah, it's very unfortunate for everyone involved. <laughs> <laughs> the whole city finds it unfortunate. Yes. Yes. Uh, We have a dot point here about the plague narrative and this book in particular talking about destroying the sanctity of the body. That's really Mm, interesting. Yes. Yes. So one of the things that I love that this book does 
is that throughout the narrative, um, there's this violation of flesh, this sense of body horror mm-hmm. in the way not only that the plague breaks down people's bodies and there's pustules and there's boils and people get chunks of their flesh carved out, Johan, um, but also Johan can't die and frequently will just like cut himself or jump off things and like gross things will happen. There's a bit where he gets shot and he's like, a piece of my eyeball is on the sand, lol. Um, <laughs> literally like uh, lol. Literally like lol. And then Florian's magic um, breaks down his body. Um, it's said like someone who was on fire. I don't remember the exact quote, but like it looks all like blackened and the texture is weird. He wears makeup to hide it yeah and i think that that's one of the things that's terrifying to many of us about plagues particularly plagues that also cause disfigurement or pockmarks um it's what's the name of the thing where you're afraid of holes tryptophobia Mm, maybe i can't remember we can look it up later but i think a lot of us are just like violently horrified by the idea that we might break down trypophobia Trypophobia. Yep. Yes. And I think that's something that particularly the Black Death in Doomsday Book and the plague in Monster and even in the X-Files episode, um, it plays off the audience horror at the way that bodies break down under disease. Yes. Mm. Like- and I think specific... I was going to say, specific markers of specific diseases mm-hmm. get entrenched in the narrative of those diseases oh. because we start thinking about, you know, what are the early warning signs? Mm-hmm. How will we mm-hmm. know? How do we know who is infected? How would I know if I was infected? And so there are things that everybody knows about the Black Death and right. bubonic plague and the, the existence of black buboes. And also that's the title of this episode comes from Ring a Ring of Roses, A Pocket Full of Poses. A tissue, yep. a tissue, we all fall down. Um, you know, you look for the little red circles. Right, which is the beginning of the, the bubo, right? Yeah, and, you know, for example, even the AIDS crisis, there was this uh, sense of um, Carposi sarcoma, which is oh. this, you know, particular skin lesion that was often the first outward sign that someone had was HIV positive and had developed AIDS. Mm. And because so much of immunodeficiency is just about being prone to pneumonia or prone mm-hmm. to other infections, Carposi sarcoma became like the outwards mark mm-hmm. of infection. And it's why there's so much horror around diseases where you're absolutely right, Macy, where the bodily san- sanctity is so more broken down, like um, leprosy. And yeah. Ebola. There was this huge fear of lepers. Mm-hmm. Because it was so obvious and so disgusting, I suppose, in the ways of society as to what was happening to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this plays, this is like deeply in conversation with our goth camp episode, because we talked a lot about sort of the sanctity of the body there and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what a fixation sort of gothic literature has on the body with Frankenstein or with... um, uh, what did we also tent? We tent pulled. Uh, oh, Repo the Genetic Opera. Yeah, because um, oh, that had th- that, oh Repo, but that had tons and tons of stuff about like our relationship to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm. And also, surgery is a violation of that. Yes, right? and yes. What Johan does to himself in this book is not surgery, but there's some places where he gives Florian a knife, and Florian is experimenting on him because Johan's going to heal anyway. So right. why not? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of cutting people open, shall we talk about the X-Files? Yes. Sure. So our third temple is X-Files episode, season one, episode eight, The Ice. The Ice. And it took us a while to come up with a third temple for this particular uh, episode. I think we were sort of having a think about where we could find any fan fiction and then the existence of this episode of the X-Files <laughs> sprang into my mind and I said, yes, we're doing the Arctic one. Yes. So in this episode, it's one of the earliest episodes of the X-Files, Mulder and Scully get sent up to an Arctic research station where the entire research team who were mining down into an ancient ice core died under mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. And they're being sent up there with a team of other scientists who are, I think, you know, possibly there's a geologist and there's someone else who are also kind of, you know, ice geology Mm -hmm. scientists to try and find out what happened and to, I guess, if necessary, take over the research. Mm -hmm. Except once they get there, they discover a little bit more about the ways in which the people who were originally there died. And it turns out that there is some kind of infectious parasite, which possibly came from a meteor strike. 
possibly Question alien mark? life form. Also, why 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 is the worm causing buboes? Anyway, uh, yeah, okay. There's <laughs> there's some dubious science in this, but <laughs> it hangs together really beautifully as a locked house, like locked room murder mystery. Mm-hmm episode because they are stuck in this station there is a storm outside they cannot be they cannot contact help because of the storm and it's a small group of people becoming increasingly paranoid about which of the others might be infected Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. i think it's a fantastic episode of television it plays out really really well and yes it has this wonderful genre of host leaping parasite (laughs) that causes someone to become aggressive and potentially attack and kill other people some of the biology is a bit dubious. They attempted <laughs> to do buboes, but they just had these sort of like slightly black specks and lumps under the arms, which were not actually where the axillary lymph nodes are and appeared to in fact be dermatological marks. And then they disappeared. I don't even know. Anyway, <laughs> Dr. Freya has opinions. <laughs> Dr. Freya has some opinions. Dr. Freya also would like to know what would be the evolutionary basis of a life form that wants to go out and spread of turning someone aggressive and then killing other potential ho- I, I don't know yeah anyway. how do they mate when they just murder each other all the time I- yeah there's this thing where the worms like two worms can't exist in the same host and also like don't want to exist in the same territory so, yeah it's weird like is, does that does that count if they reproduce i don't know apart but from think- the questionable parasitology it's great but I think that the thing that you're saying about paranoia is exactly what this episode gets me that's the big plague trope. Yes. It's like, yes. who is infected and are they going to affect me? How does it transfer? Don't touch me. You know, stay over there. Right. I mean, like, they immediately go to this very, like, violent... Because one of the, the symptoms of this parasite is that you get really violent, um, because it does blah, 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 hormones in your brain, whatever. Okay, sure. Um, television in the 90s, whatever. Um, but that's not a useful symptom when literally everyone around you is scared <laughs> and paranoid yeah. and mad and trying to protect themselves. Like, it it escalates too quickly for, for oh, yeah, violence to be <laughs> a, a useful symptom marker, which is but terrifying narrative- in itself. Yeah, and narratively works very well. Oh, yeah. Because right. you've got a group of stressed people snapping at one another. Yeah, because you're like, oh, my God, which yeah. one of them has it? <laughs> yeah, and then all of them are stressed. And the more stressed they get, they start throwing out more accusations and they get yeah. more stressed and, ooh, you know, any of them could be infected. And I think rather than this being a fear of loss of bodily sanctity, this is a loss of personal control. Yeah, mm, yes. Because the whole running theme of it is we are no longer who we were. And that's yep. what the recording that brings them to the station says. It's this guy, the last guy standing is saying, we are not who we are. Yeah. And it's the idea that you could be taken over by a disease that turns you into something that is not yourself, even yes. if your body itself is still fine. Yeah, oh, man. It's really good. It's good shit. But an escalation, if we're okay to start talking a little more generally now. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the second order derivative tropes and themes that we get alongside plague narratives all the time Mm -hmm. um, and that we see in fiction we can use in our fiction and the paranoia reminds me of my top one of these which is xenophobia oh yeah so a lot of the time um, when we were in dublin last summer we were lucky enough to have a buddy alongside everina maxwell whose book is coming out next year i think so it's next year good we'll shit. It. yeah um who works with whose whose partner whose wife works in plague control viral control and was telling us all sorts of cool things about plagues but one of the big ones was um people look for people to blame and a lot of the time this ends up being groups of people who are already othered in some way mm-hmm. particularly racial groups Mm. And I think and we we're saw seeing that. that today. We are. And we saw it very well illustrated in Doomsday Book in the modern right. day flu uh, outbreak where groups of people started spreading rumors almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And even even when the doctors were convinced that it was actually a variation on an American outbreak and were trying to frantically trace it back to South Carolina, which was where they thought it had come from initially, mm-hmm. you had people coming and saying, oh, is it true that it's from India? Huh. You know, and and then exactly as you said, the uh, foreseeing that there was almost immediately a group of people blaming the fact that England is in 
you know, the equivalent of the EU and oh, trying to use this as an excuse for, for them to Brexit. Oh, yeah. like yeah. it's all so painfully accurate yeah. as to the xenophobic response to this kind of outbreak of disease. And I mean, we're seeing it with um, people not going to Asian restaurants at present, yep. right? And yep. uh, particularly Chinese restaurants. Um, and Which, this is something that I think we do use in our fiction, right? I think so. I mean, it's such a standard human response. And, like, the the execution of the response is nonsense, right? And you should, like, look at your brain and have a talk with your brain and be like, brain, maybe we shouldn't be so racist about this. But Maybe. It, may, maybe. But also, like, the reasons that it happens sort of have a logical progression because you're like oh this or at least like according to the unreliable narrator that is your brain and the information that you have available at the time you're like oh i know that this thing is this even if that thing is not true right like you have a piece of information that you think is true and then you base decisions logically quote unquote based on that decision right so you're like oh i can protect myself if i do this 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 thing and then logically from there, if I do those things, then I won't get it and I'll be safe. And here's someone else who is attempting to violate my ability to protect myself. I will retaliate. Right? That's a quote unquote logical progression, even if it's not based on actual real facts. I think that like historically, some of the examples uh, with the Black Death around particularly folks in the Jewish quarters having better survivability for better practices right. um, and then getting targeted as having cast it as a curse and, mm. you know, people who are Roma also getting targeted. It's a scary thing. Um, yeah. And I don't love it about how we human. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, like, to try not and to think, do. Yeah, and if you're writing a plague narrative, if you're using it in fiction, I think even, even if you are going for the, you know, it's nobody's fault where this came from, at a certain point you do have to make a decision as the author as to where did it come from mm -hmm. and why is it spreading now. And I think it was very smart on Connie Willis's part to do it as something that was emerging from England itself. Yes. Rather than it actually coming from overseas. Absolutely. Because, sure, I mean, sometimes things will. You know, COVID-19 probably did arise in Wuhan in China. Right. But obviously that does not explain, sorry, does not excuse the xenophobic response. Right. Uh, but I think if you're doing it in fiction, you do again have to be careful about whether you might be perpetuating a particular narrative, mm -hmm. even if you are wanting to say something with how your characters are responding to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think talking about things that we see in fiction that aren't actually true, I wanted to mention a theory from uh, Rebecca Solnit's work, A Paradise Built in Hell, which is a lot of the times disaster narratives portray people on the street causing chaos and rampaging. Um, but in actual practice, what happens a lot more often is a thing called elite panic, which I want to see more of in our plague narratives too. What is elite um, panic? So the quote that I have is, uh, basically, elites believe the rest of us are about to panic or become a mob, and in their fear, they act out to prevent something that may have existed only in their imaginations. So this is, for example, our um, nameless president imposing a travel ban to Mexico, which has had six cases, but not closing the Canadian border, which has had more. Mm. Yeah. This is actually, I think, really well illustrated, not in a plague setting, but in Nightwatch mm. uh, by Terry Pratchett, which I think we have talked about on, on the podcast I don't think that well. one specifically, but we've talked about the characters. Mm, but I remember like that one is about a suboptimal disaster response where the disaster is a, the threat of revolution. Mm -hmm. And it's about the elites mm, sort of mm -hmm. preempting the idea that there's going to be a mob and trying to retaliate with mob control yeah. even before it becomes a problem. And the main character has to realize that actually the, <laughs> the preemptive retaliation is probably going to make the mob not prevent it or protect against it yeah and i think that's an that's something that has to be sort of underlined about elite panic is that it's this idea that you are trying to prevent something but by doing so you yeah. are creating a message that may make things worse you fulfilled your own prophecy yeah exactly so what are some of the ways that we can use plagues in fiction i created a taxonomy uh, oh, oh good job freya <laughs> 
Uh, but obviously this is not a comprehensive list, but I can go down my sort of five dot points that I came up with, which were primary antagonist or threat, mm-hmm. which is I think what it is more or less in Doomsday Book. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I guess in, I guess all of them have it as the primary antagonist or threat in that, you know, I guess well, Florian and are the antagonists as well as the protagonists as they are creating <laughs> the plague. But yes, yeah, so obviously you have the plague can be the thing that is the major threat to the characters. Um, it can be a tool or a weapon of an antagonistic force. I so think that's I think or... that's more Monster of Ellen Taven. Yes. The second more yes. than the first, yes. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it can just be a plot point that is one of many plot points. Mm-hmm. That, you know, a plague can complicate things or create a barrier of some kind. Which in the um, nun's can... book that I read earlier is that one, the Lena Rather book. Yep. Um, it can be not really a plot point, but rather part of the societal context. Okay. Um, either in like important in the world building or it's something that's been going on for a while and it affects the society that you're writing about without necessarily being a plot point or it can be backstory mm-hmm. i think we're going to talk a little bit more about you know zombies and post-apocalyptic things but i think most post-apocalyptic uh narratives that use plague the plague is something that has happened right and here is the result and I was thinking again about um, Mira Grant's Newsflash series mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. The, the zombie plague is something that is sort of still going, but it's much more we are now in a world created by that. Yeah. And the story goes from there rather than it being something that hits during the narrative. Right. Because post-apocalyptic fiction is more about the aftermath. Like that's the part where yes. what we're most interested in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for an example of kind of one that's a societal context, um, Sarah Pinsker's A Song for a New Day has a whole lot of world building around i mean the plague was in the past but it's kind of still expected to be present so for example if you're going to a restaurant you will go to an airtight booth and you will order through a computer interface and you won't interact with anyone you'll be sealed in Mm. Um, and people Mm. just don't interact in real space because there's this uh fear of infection at all times yeah it's the thing we were talking last last episode when we were talking about bureaucracy about ritual and where things come from and handshaking mm-hmm. yeah and i can imagine obviously even now there's a lot of conversation online about how do we protect ourselves against infection and the big mm-hmm. one is stop shaking hands yep yeah with people because it's now serving no useful purpose and is in fact serving a negative purpose right <laughs> i mean i've seen several people having really good useful conversations about like what can we do at conventions to make conventions less of a hotbed? Because conventions are already a fucking hotbed. Like, all oh, of yeah. us have come home with con crud before. Because yep. um, people coming from every corner of the the country and mingling together and bringing their own, like, miniature strains of this and that, and it becomes a soup and you go home feeling terrible. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Don't Wash shake anyone's hands. hands um wash your mostly just wash your hands just wash your your head don't share drinks with people this is the thing that happens at conventions don't do that and i think it was interesting because i went to Worldcon last year having just gotten over a cold and probably Mm post-infectious and one of the things was that i warned people who particularly people i was on panels with i'm like if you are immunocompromised sit away from me yep i'm 90 percent sure i'm past this but i'm going to tell you up front and i think the thing that um gets frustrating is when people who know they're infectious won't bother to warn and will happily go around cons yep hugging people yep and just being thought like you and i both had the cold at the world fan no at the nebulas a couple years ago yes and we had to be like we would love to hug you and shake your hands but we we're not going to do it we're not going to do it because we love you but also it's interesting sociologically because that was super awkward and people behaved a little bit awkwardly about us doing that. It was. And so it has a social cost and so people find it easier to not say anything. And I think that's part of the like, it's, diseases spread quite easily yeah. in groups. <laughs> right. And I think yeah. that there was also a note of like, we would tell people this and they would sort of, you could see it in their eyes that they were having this mental calculus of, do I want to, I know this person is sick. Do I want to even stay in this person's presence for more than 10 seconds? Or do I want to find a way to like back away slowly and find someone else to talk to? So, which if they had, I would have respected that decision. Um, consent. Because consent. Yes. Yeah. Consent. Absolutely. I think you- 
Yeah, it's it's a time where there have to be some deliberate breakdowns of social mores yes. in order to produce new social mores mm-hmm. that are more effective in protecting the population. And then obviously you're going to have some non-deliberate fracturing of social mores and social bonds created by fear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's a world-building note that I wanted to mention earlier, but I failed to work it in, which is um, when you're looking at a pandemic or an epidemic disaster, um, sociologists see disasters as moments when subterranean conflicts emerge into the open. I say, quoting Rebecca Solnit again, which is to say, if you're doing a plague narrative, the way that the plague happens and affects your society should be a reflection of your world building Mm. and what are the tensions and the friction points who is already scared of whom right um the things that happened to jews during the black death were not because everybody loved them before right it was because there was already the scaffolding in place like you said earlier earlier on um the people who are blamed for it are the people who are already othered by the society or can or can easily or, become such yes exactly um you see also the aids crisis and this is a curse from god to prove that being gay is wrong right mm. and i think this kind of thing will um, expose weak spots on every level so you see mm-hmm. in doomsday book that it exposes people's selfishness and there's a lot of people who for some reason think that the quarantine doesn't apply to them because oh god you know, getting in to see their son and making sure he's taking care of himself is more important. Or the dig that you've been working on is, is more, more important. important. Yeah. And even... Fucking humans. I suppose. Yeah. And even how a society will or will not be able to adapt the ideal conditions to contain spread will expose weak spots. There's been a lot of talk on Twitter about the fact that people are probably not going to take time off work because there are some aspects of society that make that impossible right in america an uninsured test costs over three thousand dollars yep yep yeah or you're in a job where there is no security whatsoever and you need the money and you can't get sick leave and so you're probably going to show up unless you are actively you know yeah cannot make it in and for for many people like it's a fairly mild case so you might not even know that you have it you might just feel kind of icky and you're like oh you know i feel a little bit off today but i can still go to work Good job, you're spreading it. <laughs> but bringing it back to fiction for a moment, yeah. um, this is something to consider when you're looking at the spread of a disease in your specific culture and world building. Um, it will not be a generic spread. It will spread along lines of connection that already exist, mm-hmm. based in part on how it transmits, right? Like if you're doing a rat flea-based plague, that is not necessarily going to be spreading by ways that humans interact. But if you're plague spread is generic you are missing an opportunity yes shall we yell about zombies let's yell about zombies <laughs> ah! sorry that's okay i so felt alex like... has been eaten yeah i've yeah. been eaten i felt like it was it was kind of a dour episode i think we needed a joke there <laughs> it just felt like the right time for a, a little bit of levity would you now like to moan about zombies mm, my brains <laughs> thank you zombie alex you're welcome <laughs> So yell yell at me about zombies, Macy. What do you love about zombies? For me, zombie fiction is like a subgenre of plague fiction, but it has just so many instances, right? Um, Have either of you, I know Alex hasn't, Alex don't, have either of you watched Kingdom? No, No, and I'm not going to. (laughs) I have been trying to watch Kingdom because I really want to, and it's too scary for me. So I've been watching it on mute in 10 minute increments. That's very scary. I'm definitely not watching this. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it's a lot. Um, but Kingdom is this amazing zombie pandemic about a Korean, like, a Joseon-era Korean pandemic where the emperor dies and his evil wife is still pregnant with what they hope to be an heir. And so her family moves heaven and earth to resurrect the emperor enough for her to give birth so that her son will get the throne rather than the actual heir to the throne who they Mm. don't like yeah and the quote-unquote cure for death of the emperor basically turns him into a zombie who they keep chained to a bed but he manages to bite someone and it's very contagious and the disease begins to spread Mm. yeah see i haven't 
I have not. I think I've watched anything zombie-ish apart from Shaun of the Dead, which is a parody <laughs> of the zombie genre. And even that was a little bit too gory for me. So I wasn't particularly au fait on this genre. But as I right, I did mention earlier, the Newsflash series by mm-hmm. Nero Grant. And I like this one because the biology is really, really well thought out. Mm-hmm. Shaun so and good at that. Shonen is very good at that. I think I've already told the story on this podcast about how she kept calling the CDC for, for <laughs> advice about whether her virus creation was uh, authentic enough. Uh, but one of the things I quite like about it is that it t- talks about the way that it's not just human specific. Mm. So the virus in question is called Kellis Amberley and it infects all mammalian life. Mm. And once you get above a certain mass threshold, which I'm just using Wikipedia article here to cheat because I can't remember the details. Okay, okay any host mammal over 18 kilograms will turn into a zombie. That's fun. Yeah. Zombie fun. elephant. <laughs> um, and there's also variants of it in humans where you may get a virus infestation of only one part of your body that can then be contained. Like one of the main characters, I think, um, gets an eye version oh of it uh-huh. um, that leaves her with really sen- eyes that are really sensitive to light. Uh, so you don't necessarily have just humans shuffling around as zombies. You have mm. humans who may have been affected in other ways by it. And you also have... Uh, zombie other creatures which i think is amazing yeah yes. yeah because i think that zombie it plays with all of the things that we were talking about in our tent poles earlier right the yeah. whole violation of flesh thing the fear of loss of control of self mm-hmm. that we got in the x-files episode um and it's if you're doing your zombie fiction thoughtfully then you are a hundred percent dealing with the same sort of spread of disease and Epidemiology, is that my right phrase, Freya? Is that the word? Epidemiology? Yeah, epidemiology is specifically around, yes, how viruses and bacteria and other infectious things spread. It's a very sort of (laughs) statistical-based science, but obviously involves a lot of how do societies respond to it. You know, what is the number of cases you need to have? How do things spread? What's the mathematical model of how they spread? Yeah, I had this really interesting discussion with Django Wexler on Twitter the other day, spawned (laughs) by Max Gladstone, um, as always. But he posited that the modern zombie apocalypse is about the fear that comes from the knowledge that our lives depend on strangers doing their jobs correctly. That's terrifying. That's just terrifying right there. Yeah, right. Modern Mm -hmm. life depends on the world Mm -hmm. as a whole more or less working and we actually completely have reneged our responsibility to people who are in poorer circumstances to ourselves we know that fact yeah we know that they will not be healthy because we haven't put in the place the systems to protect and heal them and we're terrified we're terrified and i think that we even know like like society quote-unquote works right now but we're literally like one bad day away from it not working. And I think we know that in our heart of hearts. And like, we don't, some of us don't want to admit that, right? And some of us don't want to bother to build a stronger society that can have some more resilience built into it. Mm. Um, And so that's why that's so terrifying, because we know how close we are to it every single day. And I think that this is also identically true of plague narratives. Yeah. That one of the more scary things, and frequently a source of many deaths in plague narratives, is the breakdown of the systems of society that keep us fed and clothed, leading to resource shortage, leading to what narratives assume will be people fighting over bread in the streets. Right. Which is not what actually happens. It's probably not. Study the actual occurrences. But hey, when has facts ever stopped fiction? Yes. I mean, and we mentioned this earlier about the sanctity of the body. Like, it's it's this fear of society not working. It's this fear of your body can and will eventually betray you. I mean, linear time progresses as <laughs> is its want, and we all age. We all have have to confront our own mortality in really big, scary ways sometimes. Um, uh, and the like, grimmest of my father's dad jokes. Oh, God, what is it? <laughs> Life is a sexually transmitted terminal disease. Fuck off, dad. Come on. (laughs) Come on, dad. 
dad yeah dad please groan um but like the scary thing about a disease specifically is that it is this big antagonist and it's one that you can't punch right like like sometimes you can try you can try some some of them you can with like penicillin or vaccines (laughs) hey friends get vaccinated i feel like it was an astolat um fuck american idol fanfic with a zombie apocalypse in it. Do you remember yeah, the one? Yeah, there was. That, that's a deep dive on Astolat. <laughs> no, but listen, listen, friends. We haven't mentioned it's, any it's fanfic thing. yet. And that's I'm about true. to ask you two to think about if you know any. Um, but there's a line in it and it's very clearly a pandemic. It's not actually a zombie apocalypse. It's mm. a disease that presents like the one in the X-Files. And one of the characters halfway through turns to the other who is throwing up because he's had to kill an infected person to protect them. And he says, get it through your head. They're zombies. It's them having to completely dehumanize the people with the disease. Yeah. Which is not a great response to infected humans. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. Like fucking grim. (laughs) I I think... I have you think now about why I can't think of more fan fiction with this as a narrative. And I honestly think it's because if you are writing a plague narrative, you are probably, in most cases, committing to killing some of your characters. Yeah. 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 Like, I think it would be, unless you are writing it very much as like a, it is just a societal context or it is just backstory. Mm. There is a certain expectation that if you go into a story about this, whether it's a movie or a book, that there is going to be a body count. Yeah. I feel and people don't often want to do that with with their favorite fan fiction characters. Yeah, I mean some people do. Yeah, I have a vague memory of reading a possibly Yuri on Ice fic that involved zombie apocalypse, but I may now that I'm thinking about it, I may be just conflating it with the uh, Pacific Rim mm-hmm. Yuri on Ice yeah. fic because that has kind that... of a similar impact and like mm-hmm. patterns of society and and public response and so forth. And that's like apocalypse as a genre as yeah. opposed to pandemic as a genre. Right, right. And it's very interesting that we assume that pandemic dot 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 apocalypse. Like pandemic equals apocalypse. Right. Um, and I don't think it has to. I don't think it has to. I mean, you could argue that the Black Death was an apocalypse. It, argue, I don't think you even need to argue that the Black Death was an apocalypse. It absolutely was. Um, but we've had other pandemics that were big and scary and deeply impactful without quite reaching the level. They were, let's say, cataclysmic. Smallpox was, a, smallpox was an apocalypse for the people who lived on this continent before mm. we came here. Oh, yep, that's true. That's real true. That's really and true. So, maybe so it depends on context as well. Is we don't want to live through an apocalypse with our characters. We'll happily set them in a post-apocalyptic setting, but we don't want to be there, you in know, the wiping their bile yeah. while they die horribly. Because yeah, I mean that's I mean that's what you're seeing in the Doomsday Book is yes, <laughs> yes. there's going to be a large body count, but that in a terrible authorial sense, that's what the characters are there for. Because they are in a plague narrative. Yeah. Whereas with fan fiction, usually you're trying to fulfill um, an external, like something that you want to say with those characters. You're not like, well, I love these characters. I want to say something with them. <laughs> yeah. How about I kill, kill them, them all horribly? I mean, some people do. Like that, you know, of course, these fanfics probably exist. But usually you're coming from a, from a place of wanting something interesting to happen to them. Possibly not with them all dying. Yeah. Well, darling listeners, as we are getting towards the end, tell us, do you have any favourite plague fanfics? Your serpents are very curious now. Yeah. I'd yeah, love to try would... that flavour. I... I was very interested. <laughs> Macy, please. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting here for like the whole episode going, oh God, what are we going to do for our funny little end of the episode comment? And I think that's it, Macy. Good job. <laughs> try that flavour. Doesn't have anything to do with plagues, but it's still real gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, find a plague victim and lick them. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Public health announcement. From Dr. Don't Freya. Don't lick plague victims. Don't lick plague victims. Hey everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Sitting here on March 18th, 
as Seattle edges closer to a lockdown, I keep coming back to the importance of art. Stories like the ones we were discussing today help us make sense of the inexplicable truths of the world, and I go back and forth between avoiding disaster narratives right now and devouring them. I dropped a box of books on a friend's doorstep today, and I did include the fifth season. Because Nora taught us humans can get through hell if we care about each other. If you're seeking out this stuff, like I am right now, uh, please consider the eerily prescient A Song for a New Day by Sarah Pinsker, and look after yourselves. But we have some slightly jollier topics to talk about soon. On the next episode, two weeks hence on April 8th, we'll be discussing reliving our college days. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is The Student Prince by Fay J. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat. Which, if you haven't joined us there, now's a great time. Our chief mod and scribe extraordinaire, Sarah, will be hosting games and activities for all of us plague-bound souls. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where Alex is up to shenanigans. And hey, by the way, I know you're doing what you can, even though it's hard, so keep it up and stay safe. I'm proud of you.